Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. I am joined by Crystal. Her and I are wearing the same uniform today, for those of you who could actually see not us. planned. Yeah, look. This happened. This shirt. This is not adorable yeah, of us. This was not planned at all. We promise. It is kind of Also, Kyle kind of funny. wearing jeans today, not look, sweatpants. Look at Nothing me. game. Look at me. So proud of you, babe. Amazing. <laughs> really something special. I usually wear sweatpants all the time. Still wearing slippers, the though. Occasion? Uh, I don't know. I just saw the jeans first. When I woke up, gotcha. I was like, I guess I'm going with that. So in a weird way, the laziness led me to the jeans. To too. the jeans, gotcha. Yeah. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense knowing you. Uh, so anyway, guys, we got a great show coming up for you. We're going to be talking to Matt Brunig of the People's Policy Project. He is awesome. Honestly, he's one of my favorites. And when Marianne Williamson becomes president, I will make sure that he's an economic advisor to her. Um, just a brilliant guy. Yeah. Uh, I want to get into socialism with him and a bunch of other stuff. He's done some phenomenal work over the years. And he just started actually uh, doing videos on his YouTube channel. They're really good. Yeah, I highly recommend people um, go to Matt Bruni's YouTube channel. He's a very clear thinker. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. clear, analytical thinker. So a uh, lot we want to talk to him about. And I want to get his thoughts on some of the things that Biden threw out this week in terms of policy proposals in his State of the Union. Um, so, yeah, excited to talk to yeah, him. Yeah, looking forward to that. We've been so, working on getting him on the podcast for a while. Yes, we have. Yeah. So got a couple things I want to get to. Before I do, just real quick mention, uh, did you guys cover on Breaking Points the Seymour Hirsch yes. thing? So correct me if I'm wrong, but the findings were that, like, you had it was the U.S. who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. That is what his report says. Now, caveats, Uh single anonymous source. Okay. Okay. Um, And I've seen some people who know a lot more about the way the military works and the chain of command and whatever that were calling into question certain pieces. However, the motive for the U.S. to blow up uh, the Nord Stream pipelines always made way more sense than the motive for Russia to blow up their own infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of skepticism online and I'm kind of baffled by it. Because I don't understand. It's like, obviously, it was I, I don't buy the Russia's blowing up their own colossally profitable pipeline. I think Correct. that's silly and goofy. Yes. So it's got to be, I, you know, I thought, honestly, Ukraine. But then you told me they don't really have the technological capability capability to pull something like that off. And so then I thought, well, who else is on that, you know, this side of the war? Right. And then you think U.S., you floated U.K. maybe. Right. So I don't know why people I don't know why there's so much skepticism, to be honest. Well, I mean, this is a result of propaganda. But even beyond, like, just, okay, if you think about the motives, the U.S. motive makes a lot more sense than Russia denying them. So not only this is a critical source of revenue for them, but also critical point of leverage for them. Um, And has always that's why it has always been, the U.S. has always been like, eh, I don't know if we really like this pipeline going to Germany because they didn't like the idea of them having this access to sort of cheap, Russian gas. And so it was always a bit of a strategic iffy spot for the U.S. And then once you end up with this war, then they're worried that it's going to be weaponized by Russia. So anyway, the U.S. motive always made more sense. But even beyond that, you've now had multiple reports come out saying we didn't find any evidence of Russian sabotage. So don't you think if there was even a little bit of an indication, the U.S. media would be all over, you know, hyping up, OK, we found X and Y and Z that could potentially point to Russia. So they haven't found any evidence of Russian sabotage. I don't know if the way that it happened that's laid out in great detail in the Cy Hirsch piece is exactly how it went down. But even let's say it wasn't the U.S., let's say maybe it was Ukraine, maybe it was the U.K., anyone who's on the NATO side of things ultimately— it's the U.S. We're the ones 
who are running this, who are driving this train. We're the ones who have the capability. We're the ones providing the intelligence. So even if it was Ukraine, they're not doing it by themselves. We're providing the training. We're providing the resources. We're providing the intelligence gathering, et cetera. So um, that's kind of how I've always looked at it. It's just it's just a scary situation overall. And to get, you know, some degree of verification that it was the U.S., it's like it's an act of war. Can everybody kind of reel it in a little bit here? Like, I actually I'm very sympathetic to the arguments on the pro-Ukrainian side of like, look, we were invaded. Yeah, they were the aggressor. Therefore, by definition, almost anything we do in response to it is defensive because they invaded us. We didn't invade them. I'm actually very sympathetic to that argument. But, you know, where it gets very murky and and sketchy and questionable is when you have the United States, a giant nuclear armed superpower now doing not just proxy war stuff, war war stuff with another nuclear armed state, then all of a sudden it's like, well, then Russia can turn around in kind and be like, well, you know, I don't want to overstate it here, but equivalent of some sort of Pearl Harbor-like attack somewhere and say, hey, you guys had to come and you attacked our pipeline or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just yeah. opens up the door to more, like, this is the tit-for-tat escalation that everybody warned about from the beginning. Correct. And it's a terrifying, terrifying scenario. I mean, I know people, I know it's unpopular to say at this point in time, but, like, you got to get to the negotiation table. You got to do it ASAP. You got to de-escalate this thing because the stakes are just way, 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 way too high. Yes. And at the same time, uh, Zelensky was just in the UK. Uh, uh, I believe he's in France as we're recording this now. And he asked them for fighter jets, which is something that Biden still says, no, um, we're not going to give you F-16s. And the Brits were like, yeah, we might do that. Oh. Yeah. This is what happens. He always says no. Biden says no initially. And then like five months later, he quietly does mm-hmm. the thing he said no to. Yes. Which is like if you stood stood by the no, because, again, remember, guys, the reason why he does that is to try to make a clear distinction and be clear to the Russians that like, look, we're only providing, quote unquote, defensive capabilities. We are so far beyond. That. Well, yeah, because they've, <laughs> it's been mission creep. It's been, well, we'll send you that. Then we'll send you this. Then mm-hmm. we'll send you this. And then so like, you know. It's, it's just a scary situation. And yeah. I want everybody. And by the way, not, we didn't even plan to talk about this issue. I just wanted to bring it up as a as a quick question to her. Yes. I mean, listen, in terms of the Seymour Hirsch piece, number one, for people who aren't familiar with it, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, especially for his reporting on the My Lai Massacre. Um, but he has had other blockbuster reporting. Some of his work has been called into question more in recent years. This particular report is based on a single anonymous source. So you should take all of that into context. But zooming out from the specifics of this piece, the U.S. motive makes a lot more sense than the Russian motive. They have not found any evidence that Russia uh, was behind this sabotage. And the U.S. media has been very suspiciously uninterested and oh, that's not suspicious. And I expect incurious that. I expect that. About what exactly happened here. I mean, that just shows you that. To me, is another telltale indication of who was probably. Well, and also it. you call your, you know, your intelligence officer, your intelligence agent, who's your source. If you're the New York Times, hey, is this true, bro? I don't, I don't even know what he's talking about. It's right. Like, hey, all right, we won't run the story. We won't comment. White on House story. says I this will is say complete this. fiction, so we'll just put their disclaimer in. I will here. say this: if he's wrong, which I don't think he is, but if he is wrong, then man, that that's almost like you're creating a more dangerous situation by declaring it's the fault of the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then you're opening the door for Russia to do stuff and say, hey, we this is in retaliation for... Kremlin already based on this report has said there should be consequences. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's reel it in, guys. Let's relax. Anyway. All right. Look, let's get to a um, story I wanted to talk to Crystal about. There's actually two pieces to this story. So um, House Democrats just introduced a bill to ban flavored tobacco products. Okay. Um, and now this, I, this is actually specifically in Oregon. I thought it was 
in the U.S. overall. It says Democrats in the Oregon House of Representatives. So, okay. But it's it's going state by state now. I remember we talked about, mm-hmm. was it flavored vapes? And it was in California. California. That's when we had a debate on this previously. Yeah. Um, and then, That was a ballot initiative. Right. That was, that was a ballot initiative. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, and then also we have... A new poll just came out. Now, I'm very skeptical of the source, but I'll okay. run through it for everybody here. Majority of Americans favor in favor of banning all tobacco products. So this is here. Here's what it says. A majority of Americans support a ban on all tobacco products, mm-hmm. according to a new survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, the poll, which was published in the peer reviewed journal Preventing Chronic Disease, on Thursday, asked people if they would support policies for a ban on menthol cigarettes and the sale of all tobacco products. Wow, that goes way too far. <laughs> so out of the survey, 6,455 <laughs> participants, 62.3% of people supported a ban on menthol cigarettes, and 57, 57.3% were in favor of a policy that would stop the sale of tobacco products overall. Wow, so it's kind of close. Um between those who say, like, just menthol and those who are like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Those two numbers are kind of close. That is true. Now, look, I don't know. I, I have to get to the original source here. I don't know how they phrase the question. Mm. But suffice to say, like, the journal, like, ending diseases or whatever this thing was, pre- preventing chronic disease, that strikes me as, like, you're fishing for this response. You know or what I mean? So how did, you the- word, how did you word the poll? Yeah. I mean, maybe also, though, I mean— Americans in general, their opinions on like legalizing drugs and substances are not great outside of marijuana, where people have shifted dramatically and are like, all right, guys, come on, this is let's let's open up. Let's let people buy this. Let's let them use it recreationally and certainly medically. Alcohol, too, by the way, people love their alcohol. Of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's like, you know, culturally sort of like grandfathered in. Um, But if you ask about harder, quote unquote, drugs, heroin, cocaine, et cetera, public opinion is not on your side. So it wouldn't like shock me if you did have a majority of Americans who were like, let's just ban all yeah. nicotine tobacco products. I mean, I get I would like to see more polls. Yeah, I'm skeptical of this. I'm not denying that it would be somewhat close. Yeah. But my instinct is to say, I bet keep it legal is, is winning in most. So polls. much like drug war propaganda. It's really. Well, no. See, what's interesting with cigarettes is we've we've been all on every part of the spectrum when it comes to cigarettes. So mm-hmm. there was a time when literally there are old ads where doctors prescribe cigarettes. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. They're like, this thing is great. It's going to help you. It's going to clean out your lungs. It's going to be it's refreshing. Yeah. Invigorating. And so it, you, that used to be the propaganda where it was just, you know, and bought and paid for by Big Tobacco. They would run these ads talking about this stuff. They'd have doctors on the payroll. And then, you know, it sort of got to a place where it was viewed as like health neutral. Like it's not good or bad. It just is. Yeah. And then it got to a place where it was like, no, this is actually really bad and killing really high numbers of people. I mean, what was it like 400,000 a year or something crazy like that? I don't know the numbers, but I mean, what I would guess is going on here to the extent that this poll reflects real data and real public sentiment. One thing is um, cigarettes in particular have become like associated with um, lower class. So this is, again, like major evolution, but now they're sort of like associated with lower income people. And so there's more like judgment and shame around that versus like, oh, a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with that or other indulgences of wealthier classes. So that's one piece. And then I think the other piece is a lot of parents freaking out about their teenage kids vaping. Um, So tobacco kills more. I was right. More than 400,000 Americans each year. Wow. 
I, that's great. That's a huge number. Huge number. So, um, Wait, is that all like lung cancer? Or? Uh, I mean, I could, I could try to dig into the specifics here. Probably emphysema, lung cancer. That's wild. Also, but yeah, yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, in terms of lung cancer, certain cancers get a lot of research and a lot of attention because they're seen as not being that person's fault. But then lung cancer always gets less research and less attention because people sort of like blame you for yeah. getting it, you know? There's been a massive public effort for a long time now to basically say tobacco is bad, cigarettes are bad, they give you cancer. Yeah. And, you know, they have the public service announcements that, you know, that shows the lungs all messed up. You know what yeah. I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just like they had the, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs commercials back in the day. What was that? Was that part of DARE, drug abuse resistance That was education? the Reagan era. Like, I think that was part of like Nancy Reagan's whole yeah. like anti-drug thing. So like, this is actually interesting because it shows that sort of top-down propaganda, relentless propaganda actually can change public opinion. In the same way that I, you know, I would argue the media has within the past decade or so painted marijuana in a more positive light. Yeah. So that leads to people go, hey, whatever, it's not so bad. You mm-hmm. know, they've painted uh, tobacco as evil, the enemy. There's nothing redeeming about it. It's terrible. Yeah. And on top of the government pushing that as well. And then yeah. now we're at the point where instead of people saying, yeah, it's bad for you, but you have the freedom to indulge in a vice that might be bad mm-hmm. for you. People are like, it's bad for you and ban it. Right, because that's worked really well with drugs. Yeah. Like, we don't have any addiction anymore because <laughs> drugs are banned. I yeah, mean, I mean it's, it goes I, without I, saying I, prohibition doesn't work. But e- my point is, even if it did, quote unquote, work, I don't really care. You know, like, I wouldn't, I, we'd probably have a better country. Uh, if you could, if you could ban alcohol while somehow guaranteeing you don't create black market mafia mm-hmm. stuff going on at the same time, which I know probably can't do that. But if you could, theoretically, I still would be against banning alcohol. Because I think people have a right to to consume it if they want to consume it. I agree. Yeah. So when it comes to tobacco, I feel the same way. And when they say get rid of all tobacco products, that probably means dip as well. Now, what I don't support is like what the tobacco companies were doing that they got rigged across the coal right coals rightly for back in the nineties, which is lying to people oh, about yeah. the no, health that's... impacts. Like, I mean, that's that has to be part and parcel of any regime where you have you know an ability of people to make whatever choices, even if they have negative health consequences. Is you have to understand what those health consequences are and not be lied to and propagandized and like you know banning cigarette ads and things like that especially to children like i'm good with all of that i agree with that too but um but to completely ban all tobacco no that goes way too that goes way too do you think eventually within the next 10 or 20 years cigarettes will be banned in the united states you don't think so we have here's still the thing. too much money being made we, there. We've been trending in that direction for so long now. And most of the revenue for the tobacco companies now comes from developing countries. The only way it would happen is if they really sh- switch to like either their profits are coming from marijuana or their profits are coming from vaping. And they sort of like let go of cigarettes as like this isn't really that profitable for us anymore. But I, I you're I, saying it has too much of a foothold. The, the companies have too much of a foothold. They make too much money, too many lobbyists. Because the pendulum has swung so much already. They've made them so much weaker than they were. And now you see state by state, they're sort of cracking down more and more. I think eventually you're going to see, probably in the very near future, you, you'll also, see a ban in a state. Yeah. And then eventually it'll it'll creep to more states. And then eventually they'll, it'll be talked about federally. You do have trends in the other direction too, though. Like, for example, you know, marijuana legalization. Yeah, but that's so what I'm saying. These are different these things. These things like, are, are in conflict with one another. One but is they're like, not. But they're not. Uh, okay. In principle, of course, they're in conflict yeah. with each other. But the fact of the matter is there has been more 
positive press, positive sentiment around marijuana for a decade now, and it's been nothing but negative around tobacco for mm-hmm. more than a decade now. And so you see just these things are on different tracks. One is going to be more legal and, and better. One is going to be crushed. And I, you know, I agree. The hypocrisy of that does sort of drive me crazy. I don't know why people can't just say, yeah, it's bad for you. Yeah, it's actually very bad for you. But you're allowed to use it, and we're just going to have strong regulations around it that are reasonable. No advertising to kids, yeah, right? Stuff like that. I, I just... It's weird to me that people can't grasp that whole, like, legal, safe, and regulated. You know, like, just try to put everything in that category. And I even feel that way about guns. Mm-hmm. You know, there are probably people who listen to this who are to my left on guns. or probably people who listen to this who are to my right on guns. Yeah. But they want to, hey, you know, you should be able to have whatever gun you want. Or people yeah. who say, ban all guns. Or... There's some pro-gun left- lefties out there, too, though. Yeah, no, I know. There's and, and some of them are probably listening right now. But I've always been legal, safe, and regulated with everything. So, like generally lean towards freedom but within the bounds of reason basically yeah i mean i can see with guns because there's so much negative spillover effects of you know mass societal violence that you may legal safe and regulate but regulate a little more (laughs) than some of these other things that are just about like your own choices with what you want to put into your body yeah true all right talk to me about uh we're getting a little goofy here, but this is an interesting uh, so, story to me. Okay, to be honest, this is something that Kyle and I have talked about privately. So now that this is out in the public realm, we took the opportunity to talk about it. Madonna performed at the Grammys. Now, did I watch the Grammys? No, I did not. But apparently there was a lot of commentary about her appearance. And um, we can go ahead and put up some of the images. She was performing with uh, Sam Smith and what's the other? No, she didn't perform. She was Oh, she just introduced them. them. Yeah. Okay. So she looked a little strange. The cheeks, the lips are puffy. Her face just looked really different. And this sparked a lot of social media commentary. I'm reading from the New York Post. Uh, One viewer tweeted, Madonna who? That can't be her, can it? Grammys, I really wish Madonna never touched her face, another said. There really was no reason. She was going to age beautifully. She's always been beautiful. Um, And they said, hashtag stop playing with y'all face. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Another lamented, Madonna doesn't even look like Madonna. Who was that so awkward? Okay, so that was the response because she does look strange. Um, She has now uh, responded and she called these comments ageist and misogynistic um, and said, let me get that. Here, I'll read it for you. You got it. Once again. Instead of focusing on what I said in my speech, which was about giving thanks for the fearlessness of artists like Sam and Kim, many people chose to only talk about close-up photos of me taken with a long lens camera by a press photographer that would distort anyone's face. Uh, Once again, I am caught in the glare of ageism and misogyny that permeates the world we live in. Girl, (laughs) it wasn't the camera lens. So, so yeah, give me, (laughs) give me your thoughts on this. So here's the thing. Madonna can do what she wants. We're just talking about like ability to put whatever you want in your butt. Go. If this is what you want to do and you want to like, you know, filler in the lip and the face and whatever else is going on, go ahead and do it. It's not hurting anybody, et cetera. However, I do, as I age, look at this as like a cautionary tale because she's holding on to it so hard, like this identity of herself as this 80s, 90s sex symbol pop star, like her looks and her appearance apparently being so central to that identity. You know, I sort of agree with the sentiment of the person who tweeted, like, don't just let yourself age naturally. You would actually look way better. You would actually look, you know, way more natural. And there's nothing wrong with aging. It's going to happen to anybody. So when I look at it, I, you know, whatever she could do, whatever she wants. 
but no judgment there, but I, I hope I don't hold on to it that hard. It's just kind of <laughs> sad. <laughs> yeah. Look, my rule is you can't do stuff that is sort of extra and not expect people to talk about it and react to it. Correct. So, for example, I have blonde hair right now. I've had it since Halloween. It originally started because we were doing Zach and Kelly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this will be fun. Did it. And then we look at it. And I, I think I kind of like it. And you thought you kind of like it, too. Yeah. And so we said, all right, let's just keep it right now. Yep. Eventually, for the wedding, I'm going to put it back because we don't want to look back and say, oh, that was like, what were we doing? Whatever. Yeah. Well, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. But honestly, after the wedding, I might go back to it. Yeah. It also hides the white really well. So but I understand <laughs> that since I'm doing that. At least 50% of the people are going to be like, you look like a dunce. Like, you look dumb. You look stupid. This is M &M, some 14-year-old girl type stuff. Yeah, Slim Shady, Slim Kyle, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I can't do this. And then when people react, you're like, oh, how dare you? Got it. It, it is what it is. Yeah. It's par for the course. Yeah. And so for her to act like offended, what do you expect? Nobody to say anything or people only to give you positive reactions? Well, also, and it's also just not true to say ageist and misogynistic. That's not true at all because a lot of the people were saying – you were beautiful before, and you'd still be beautiful if you didn't do this stuff. It's, so it's not ageist. It's not misogynistic. And if you're going to do something that's extra, expect an extra reaction. That's just what it is. Yeah. And I mean, listen, I do think women tend to get more scrutiny for their appearance and more like judgment over it and like whatever. But in terms of the age, it, in a sense, the critique was actually the opposite of ageism. It was like, stop trying so hard. Just it's okay. Let yourself age. It's fine. You know, nobody's going to think any less of you. And so that's it was in a sense, a pushback against right. this attempt to stay forever young and, you know, use whatever fillers, injections, et cetera, to achieve this look when in reality you're, you're making yourself look kind of freakish ultimately. This is, this is a great point that I want to stress for people. This is an indication. Her reaction and what she's done is an indication of in this society, we value youth and looks over other things that are virtuous. As you age, you usually gain wisdom about the world. You mm -hmm. have experience about the world. These are things where there are societies where they revere the elderly because like they've been through stuff. They know stuff. We can learn from them. In this society with old people, we're just like, shut up and get in the home, grandma. Mm -hmm. You know, like step aside. You're actually getting mm -hmm. in the way here. Yeah. And so she is hanging on for dear life to, to her youth and her looks. And like you said, trying to go back to 80s and 90s sex symbol Madonna. And it's like, if you defined yourself through those things to begin with, big mistake. Because there's a great old saying, beauty is a short-lived tyranny. Somebody could be super good looking, but you know what? It's going to go away and it's going to go away pretty quickly in the grand scheme of things. And then what do you have if all you cared about was your looks? Yeah. The only thing about yourself that you put any effort into was how do I present in terms of how do I look? There are other things that are more important. It's more important to be well read. It's more important to be a good person and treat others well. There are so many other things that create a fulfilling life and clinging for dear life onto, uh, you know, beauty or, or looks or youth. It's just a hollow pursuit, and you're always going to end up feeling vapid and empty at the end of it. Yeah, and in the end, you know, she's she is sort of manifesting exactly the results she didn't want to manifest. That's right. right? Yeah. She wanted, she, you know, went through whatever she did to, like, look this way so that people would, would not say, you know, oh, look at Madonna, and I don't like how she looks, right? Right. And in, instead, she got exactly the reaction that she didn't want. And, I mean, the... The first part is just so sad, claiming that this was because of a camera, particular camera. That yeah, was come on. That's not true. 
No. Come on. It's not true. It's yeah. not true. So anyway, um, yes, we should value other things. Uh, it, the other thing with famous people that I've heard that I think kind of sticks is they kind of get frozen in time from when they achieve their fame. Mm. So your like self-conception, your maturity, your growth, everything sort of gets like frozen in place at the moment that you become this big global superstar. And I, I feel like that's also kind of reflected in here and how hard she's trying to be like, no, I'm still that girl. Yeah, there does seem to be some truth to that one, huh? Yeah. It could, it's one of those things where it might not be true, but then you think about it and you're like, no, nah, that's true. Yeah. You know, anyway. All right, guys, let's go ahead and dive into it now with Matt Bruning of the People's Policy Project. Check it out. Matt Bruning of the People's Policy Project and the Matt Bruning YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's our pleasure. So I've been watching a bunch of your stuff on YouTube, by the way. Welcome to the YouTube game. I know you're relatively new to the <laughs> no, YouTube thank game. Thank you. Thank you. I'm um, coming for you guys. <laughs> good. Do that. And, uh, <laughs> Please do. I find your stuff uh, very insightful and very interesting. So I wanted to talk first. You uh, released a great video called, I think it's like describing socialism through corporate governance, something to that effect. So when most people mm-hmm. talk about socialism, colloquially, you know, a lot of people just mean government, like when the government does stuff. So Medicare, the VA, the police, the fire department, it's a common refrain you've heard from many people like, oh, that, you know, these are socialist institutions. That's one way of conceptualizing it. And of course, the more academic way is social ownership of the means of production. Um, Mm. Do you view both of these conceptions as legitimate? Is one more legitimate than another? Or in other words, give us your own definition of socialism. Yeah, you know, on the socialist canon, I I think if you sum it all up, it's basically worker or social ownership of the means of production. And then there are a variety of forms that can take. So in the video you're talking about, I mentioned state-owned enterprises, uh, which includes some of the things you talked about, whether that's libraries, public schools, fire departments, where, you know, you have a structure where you have a public owner uh, and then and then all the production occurs with the public owner and there's like a professional manager and all that kind of stuff. But then you have other forms that you can kind of meld onto that. So a worker co-op is a good example of that, where instead of having shareholders or instead of having the CEO own the company themselves, the workers will own the company, will own the shares and they'll appoint the board and appoint the CEO. I also go into consumer co-ops which are, and you know, I'm not sure exactly how to classify those, but it's the same kind of idea as a worker co-op, except instead of having the workers in each company uh, control the shares and appoint the board, you have the consumers of that company control the shares and appoint the board. And then you can have wealth funds that will just own the shares of the company, uh, whether those are wage earner funds or social wealth funds. So all these structures basically get at the idea of having workers or society more generally own the productive enterprises in society. So I kind of call them all socialistic in one in one way or another. And and that's how I, how I see what we're trying to do, to move away from kind of shareholder capitalist ownership to these other kinds of forms. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the points you stressed is that a lot of times when people think about socialism, many young people, many people on the left, they think of it as like this sort of crazy revolutionary thing, maybe violent. And uh, the essence of your video was like, well, if we actually get into the specifics, it could be a totally sort of dry thing to to go from one step, take the next step, and then boom, you're in socialism. And then it's nothing crazy, you know? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's funny kind of, uh, you know, with any political movement, you have sort of the substantive texts and proposals, and then it also sits within a specific culture. And, you know, if you're thinking about socialism of 100 years ago or 150 years ago, you have people writing at it who, you know, we would think of as kind of basically like dorks and wonks. And <laughs> I mean, if you ever read Karl Marx's uh, book, uh, you know, Capital is his main one, He he's tallying up things like the number of factories in Ireland and stuff like that. It's it's like <laughs> a whole other game. It's like it's like a spreadsheet exercise almost. Um, but over time, I think it has drifted uh, more towards a kind of youthy, angsty subculture in much of the West. And so that has kind of changed some of the impression people have about it. But, you know, ultimately, like what it looks like is going to be a change in corporate governance, uh, which which may or may not be all that exciting at the end of the day uh, for people who, you know, are kind of romantically attached to it in a kind of uh, revolutionary zeal kind of way. Yeah. Well, the other thing that you really draw out is it's also not like you just flip a switch and it's like, this is capitalism and this is socialism. There's actually a lot of gray area and debates over, for example, whether the Scandinavian countries should count as socialist societies or not. And so thinking of that in the U.S. context, you're sort of advocating for the possibility of an incremental socialism. What do you think is the most clear-cut path to uh, increasing the socialism dial or upping the socialism (laughs) dial reading in the United States? Yeah, you know, I think of three uh, main institutions. You have state-owned enterprises, uh, you have social wealth funds, and then you have... um, worker co-ops or consumer co-ops of one sort or another. Um, and there are a lot of ways you can go. So uh, we were doing some papers on this at PPP at the moment. But uh, one kind of interesting development we've seen in the last few years is something like a dozen different cities have opened up uh, municipal grocery stores. And this has tended hmm. to happen in rural areas where the main uh, grocery chain has just kind of left town because it's not really profitable anymore because it's kind of a small community. And so they just they just create a, you know, they, they move out, the city buys the lot, and then they just run like a city-owned grocery store. So something like that is, you know, you could kind of take that model and expand it and expand it and expand it. And it's not like uh, the stuff in the store is free or whatever, but, uh, you know, the, the business charges money, it breaks even. I think it's in many of these places, it's a little bit profitable. But what's interesting about the profits, of course, is when it's city-owned, the profits flow into the city's budget, and then they can use those to pay for services uh, instead of Uh, going to uh, the pockets of shareholders. So that's a kind of state-owned enterprise model, just trying to find ways to uh, just just create these public enterprises where where it makes sense to do it and where it's easy to do it. Um, Social wealth funds, uh, Alaska has one, North Dakota has one. Basically, just pull a bunch of assets on a state level and go out and buy as many stocks and bonds as you can. Uh, And then for worker co-ops, there are a lot of things you can do essentially to preference those kinds of institutions. They already exist to some extent, but tax breaks, uh, public financing to help workers uh, buy out the the companies. Um, We're going to have a lot of retirements soon, as you probably know. So there are actually going to be a lot of businesses that need to be like, bought out by somebody, you know, because their owner is going to retire and it's not really maybe something that they can just go sell out onto the public market. So the government could facilitate that exit by uh, helping uh, workers finance the purchase of those companies. So things Hmm. like that. 
So one of the things uh, I find interesting about your philosophy is that you are are a big advocate of uh, state-owned enterprises. And I feel like a good way to conceptualize this is there are some people who are socialists who believe in like a statist model of socialism, which would be state-owned enterprises. And then there's like an anti-statist model of socialism, which would be more like worker-owned co-ops, bottom-up, just take an individual productive unit entity and then socialize that like socialize a company um can you explain to everybody why it is you prefer more the the statist model of socialism why you prefer more of the uh, state-owned enterprise route as opposed to worker co-ops i know you're not an opponent of worker co-ops but i know you happen to prefer um state-owned enterprises over worker co-ops yeah so if you think about a worker co-op you would take a company and it's only the workers in that firm that get to own the company and have some say about what it does with the state-owned enterprise the government which is elected by everyone uh it gets to kind of pull the levers at the top and so i tend to prefer this just as a general matter right i don't think the only people who have an interest in how a specific company operates is the workers in that firm. There's also the consumers. There's also the public generally. If the firm is polluting, that hurts everyone. So I think everyone has an interest in how companies operate. And so if you only operate, you know, with the workers in each firm, you exclude a lot of people. There are also a lot of people who don't, who don't work at any given time, right? You have people who are retired, people who are disabled, people who are uh, stay-at-home parents. And, you know, those folks, I think, should also be involved in, in the governance of the economy or at least have some say through their vote uh, in government. Aside from that, worker co-ops, I think, are a little bit... Um, I think they're a little bit ill-fitting to the way people actually navigate work. Um, people don't stay in the same job over and over again for the rest of their lives. The average person, I think, switches jobs uh, over 10 times uh, between the time they start, uh, uh, you know, enter the workforce and, and exit and, you know, in their 50s and 60s. Um, and so what the, I, I'm not sure they really have an attachment to this specific company they work for, nor am, am I sure that we want to encourage them to have an attachment to the companies they work for. I think mm. we, we want people to move between companies if they see better opportunities or, or you know, jobs open that they would be, be good at doing. Um, and if we tie them to the firm they happen to work for, uh, then that is cut down. So. I think a social ownership makes more sense. Um, there's also an intermediate stage uh, a way of doing this, uh, which mid-century Sweden attempted for a little bit, which is you could have all the workers in each sector own all the companies in each sector. Hmm. So like all the grocery store workers would own all the grocery stores through like a collective fund. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of mix and match uh, these things as you see fit. But I, I tend to think as, as, as society-wide as you can make it is is the preferable. Uh, kind of way to structure it. Matt, there was a bipartisan proposal recently, I'm sure you saw, to um, create a social wealth fund to fund Social Security. Um, what did you think of that idea and how does that fit into some of the things you're talking about here? Yeah, I thought it was a I thought it was an interesting idea, a good idea. You know, we wrote a paper in 2017, I think, called Social Wealth Fund for America. And one of the proposals in the paper was to have the government uh, essentially borrow money and then use the money to build out a fund. The government can usually borrow at quite low interest rates, though not not at the moment, I don't think. Um, but for a long time, you know, the government was able to borrow for three percent, four percent, whatever. Um, but public equities 
generally return something like 10, 11% on an average year. So if you borrow money at 3% and you invest it at, you know, 10%, uh, you can make the difference between those as revenue. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a free money type thing <laughs> that takes advantage of the government's unique uh, ability uh, to borrow money uh, that, that other actors don't really have. Uh, so that's kind of how they are proposing it. So I think that's that's a good idea. Now, I think you, you need to make sure that you distinguish this from efforts to turn Social Security into uh, personal investment accounts and things like that. Now, mm-hmm. as I've read the proposal, that's not what it looks like. It looks like it's just a fund. There's no personal accounts that people have in the fund. It's just kind of like a moneymaker, a revenue generator for Social Security. Um, and I think you also need to make sure that you don't uh, give the fund off to, say, you know, Wall Street to manage, um, because then they're going to extract uh, fees out of it that are, are going to cause you to lose revenue that you don't want to lose. So don't give it to BlackRock. Don't give it to Vanguard or State Street. You can manage that fund in-house publicly. That's how Alaska does it. Uh, they have a public asset management company that's state-owned that that runs their social wealth fund. Uh, That's how Norway does it. So, um, you know, there are ways that they could screw it up, but the general uh, details that I've seen so far look look good to me. Matt, let me ask you about both Alaska and Norway, because their social wealth funds are both backed by oil revenue. Now, obviously, over the uh, medium to long term, we want to wind down uh, fossil fuel extraction. So how do you avoid in those instances if the revenue that's coming in is based on this thing that you ultimately want to wind down? How do you avoid sort of entrenching fossil fuel production forever if this is funds that, you know, the public depends on and that they ultimately benefit from? Yeah, so what's actually happening in those cases is they are, uh, in a way, reducing their dependency on uh, oil as a revenue source. Because what they do is, you know, when the oil gets pumped out of the ground and then sold, they take the money and they put it in the fund. And then that fund goes out and buys assets like you would see any fund buy. So they buy up stocks and bonds and real estate and whatever. And then it's only the return on those assets that they use to finance spending in Alaska. They give out a check every every year to people. So it's only the funds from the stuff they're invested in. So the way they'll describe it is they're, they're converting oil into stocks and bonds. And stocks and bonds live forever. The oil does not live forever. So you could cut the oil production out of Alaska and Norway tomorrow and the funds would continue to generate income into perpetuity because they have essentially converted the oil into stocks and bonds. So when you when I have a conversation with somebody on the right or when generic lefty X has a conversation with somebody on the right, um, if you bring up socialism, the sort of knee jerk reaction is like or communism, bring up socialism or communism. You hear like, well, what about Soviet Union? That was a disaster. Or, you know, they bring up Venezuela as the go-to for a lot of people on the right, um, or Cuba in some instances. And usually the response from a lefty is like, well, that's not real socialism or that's not real communism. Um, Number one, do you buy that? Number two, what would your answer be when talking to somebody on the right if this is how they react when you bring up socialism or communism? Yeah, you know, what people like to do with this, of course, is they they want to label countries 
that they don't that that haven't done well they they want to attach you know socialism to that and then if a country has done well they want to attach capitalism to it or vice versa right so it's a kind of a jockeying uh, game right so i wrote a piece actually a while ago when people were talking about venezuela when it took it took its dive recently uh, and i believe the piece was titled something like uh, norway is venezuela on steroids or something like that <laughs> if you look at what nor if you look at what Venezuela, Norway and Venezuela are very similar countries in terms of how they are composed. They both have a lot of oil. The oil uh, sectors make up something like 13 to 15% of their GDP, depending on the price of oil on any given uh, day, I guess. Um, and they had state-owned oil companies. Uh, the Venezuelan one was PFDSA. And then uh, Norway, we have Stat Oil. And so they're, to the extent that they are socialistic, they're structured you know, similarly, uh, the difference is that in Norway, they use their oil uh, revenue to build this huge fund, um, which now uh, controls something like 50 to 60 percent of all the wealth held in the country is is owned by this fund that wow. came initially from oil. In Venezuela, they 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 just spent the money, you know, immediately. And so when the oil price fell and collapsed, you know, Venezuela sort of fell and collapsed. When the oil price fell and collapsed in Norway, they drew a little bit of money from the fund, you know, to kind of patch things over and everything was fine. Um, so, you know, it's just really kind of how you manage it. It's It's got nothing to do with uh, like state ownership of oil or state ownership of oil companies because we see both countries have that and both countries have similarly sized oil sectors but one managed it well and one and one didn't so as, as a follow-up to that um what do you make of the response from people like when i think of the problems with say cuba or venezuela two things pop into my mind the embargo and sanctions and the authoritarianism are the two things that pop to mind when i think of like hey, why have some of these countries gone off the rails a little bit? If you get rid of the sanctions, get rid of the embargo, whether it be on Cuba or Venezuela or both of them, uh, and you limit the sort of authoritarian nature uh, of, you know, say Fidel Castro's government with crackdowns on the media, et cetera, I feel like that would sort of, the countries would thrive a lot more. Is that a fair analysis or are there things I'm missing? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's hard to disentangle a country's economic performance from what one of the major superpowers is doing to it, right? Uh, and that's, that's a problem you have across the board, whether the country is nominally socialist or capitalist. If the U.S. is not happy uh, with what you're doing, it's, it finds ways to undercut you. We actually saw this, we're seeing this right now uh, with China. Um, I don't know what exactly you want to call China at this point in terms of its uh, economy, but uh, the U.S. in the last year has uh, uh, t taken measures to basically make it impossible for China to uh, produce semiconductors in the country, just, you know, as a kind of economic warfare kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it did that for Cuba for so long. Uh, if Cuba, Cuba could, could run an economy similar to some of the other, uh, sort of island nations over there, it would probably have a big tourist economy and, and be a, a much richer nation than it is. Um, as far as authoritarianism goes, yes. I mean, I would say personally, like definitionally, socialism is incompatible with authoritarianism because socialism is meant to be a control of the society generally. So if yeah. you have an autocrat at the top that's not democratically accountable, then I don't count state ownership by an autocrat as socialism. The, mm. the state owner needs to be accountable uh, to the people uh, for it to count. So. 
you know, that that's sort of a definitional move. Um, yeah. but the other thing is, and again, this goes back to just how people want to characterize different things. You know, when a country is uh, autocratically capitalist, we don't say what that means about capitalism, you know, like Saudi Arabia or uh, Russia post uh, this, the fall of the so or before the fall. Like, Russia is not less autocratic than it was, uh, you know, before before the Soviet Union fell. Um, but now it's, you know, essentially capitalistic in the way it's structured. So that happens in any kind of economy. Um, and so, you know, the evil is the authoritarianism. It's it's not uh, who happens to own the shares of the of the companies, you know. If socialism is definitionally incompatible with authoritarianism, is capitalism definitionally incompatible with democracy? Uh, capitalism is definitely incompatible with uh, democracy, at least as it's defined. It's, it's, I would say, maybe incompatible is the wrong word. Capitalism um, does not make it necessary, does not require that the ownership of the economy be democratic. It allows the ownership of the economy to be held by a very small uh, group of people in the United States. The top, you know, 10% of people own 75% of, of all the wealth. When it comes to stocks, it's, uh, which, you know, represent ownership shares and company, it's even more concentrated than that. And that's what you've tended to see in like Western capitalist societies where we have data where we can measure these kinds of things is that the ownership and, and control of the productive enterprises tends to get concentrated in the hands of a very small number of people. And there are reasons this happened that are just inherent in the way that the system works, where money begets money and the rich can get richer because of the way investment returns work. So um, capitalism, uh, I would say, is very uh, very open to that and does tend towards that uh, outcome and, and right. doesn't seem to see that as a problem. So. I mean, doesn't that sort of inevitably lead to a slide away from democracy, because if you have increasing wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, almost inevitably, they're going to capture the political system. So you have a situation like we have in America today where, yeah, we have democracy. But if you actually look at the wishes of the people, for example, for a higher minimum wage or for, you know, like basic gun legislation, things that have hugely high stock bans, right? 80 percent of the public wants this and it is never going to happen in Congress. Isn't it sort of inevitable that in a capitalist system of the sort that we have, that you're always going to slide towards that outcome of less and less democracy. Yeah, it becomes, I think, very hard to insulate inequality in the economy from inequality in the electoral system and in the political system. And of course, inequality in the political system is anti-democratic, right? The whole idea of democracy is one person, one vote. We all have an equal say. But if we have very unequal amounts of money and very unequal uh, levels of control in the economy, then uh, it's, it's not really uh, equal say in the uh, electoral process because these things are impossible to disentangle. And you see this all the time. I'd say the most recent, most egregious example of this was uh, when they were passing the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there was a revenue raiser in there, which was going to close the carried interest loophole, which is uh, a loophole that uh, Wall Street bankers use to not pay income taxes. And uh, one senator, uh, Kirsten Sinema, 
uh, held out to uh, to to make it to where uh, they couldn't close that loophole. Uh, and and she is uh, that's where she gets a lot of her her campaign uh, finance uh, money. She's like one of their big uh, patrons, if you will, or I guess they are one of her big patrons. Um, and so. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point as well. It's not just that uh, capitalism is undemocratic in the economic sphere, but uh, by, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, it, that bleeds over into the political sphere as well, unavoidably. Yeah, uh, Crystal, to your point, I feel like that's a legitimate concern that a lot of people have. But I would argue, and this gets back to the social democracy argument, and is it a net good or will it always inevitably slide back into like laissez-faire capitalism? Mm-hmm. Um if you have a constitutional mandate for clean elections and no private campaign contributions, and so you totally separate the corporate money and the billionaire money from, you know, buying the politicians, in that scenario, I do think you can kind of have a democratic check on capitalism. But the issue is capitalism by its very nature is hierarchical, and their companies are like little tyrannies. I mean, you have the owner at the top. And actually, this is a good question uh, to ask you. So explain to people the difference, and you did this brilliantly in your video, between like when people on the right or a normie thinks of capitalism, they think of like what we'll call sole proprietor capitalism, right? Like somebody comes up with a business idea, they work hard to get it off the ground, maybe they hire a few people, they pay those workers, you know, decently, and uh, they also still do a lot of the hands-on work and, and managerial work, and um, at the end of the day, they end up making, you know, a, a decent living, and isn't that lovely, isn't that wonderful? Explain to people the difference between that sole proprietor capitalism, which I just described, and shareholder capitalism, which is very, very different. Yeah, so the main difference is whether the person who manages the company is also the person who owns the company. And like you, uh, you know, mentioned, uh, anytime you kind of read a right wing, uh, book about this or watch right wing documentaries, or I'm sure there's tons of YouTube videos about this, they like to focus on businesses where the owner of the business also manages the business. Because in that case, it's a little bit hard to disentangle what part of their income is because they're just a good manager who's running a business and that's not an easy thing to do. And what part of the income is just profit from the fact that they happen to own this company and they're kind of able to squeeze money out of it just just through that ownership. It's very hard to disentangle that if the owner is the top manager, is the CEO. But that is not, in fact, how most the economy is organized. Uh, most the economy is organized through these shareholder firms where the owners are shareholders. And then you have a professional CEO who is not an owner. And the shareholders collect, you know, the lion's share of the sort of money that comes out of uh, the firm, at least sort of like if you take executive compensation plus profit, profit far exceeds executive compensation. So in a, in a kind of shareholder uh, uh, company, it's very easy to track, you know, who is making money without doing anything because it's the shareholders, they don't do anything. Um, but in a, in a, proprietor kind of model it's it's hard to uh, to disentangle that so let me ask you in a roundabout way to weigh in on a debate that that Kyle and I have kind of been having here um when you think about Barack Obama and you think about Joe Biden who of course just gave his state of the union uh this week and laid out what he's done and what he thinks about what he's done and what he thinks it's achieving and what he hopes to achieve in the future um where would you put the socialistic dial for Obama versus You love this dial. (laughs) (laughs) I like the dial concept as well. I think, you know, I like the, yeah. I think people go too much on a binary with that and that leads to a lot of problems. That's right. You know, it's, 
I mean, I would say n- n- no real progress at all, either, <laughs> frankly, uh, when it comes to socialism. You know, you can like, you know, one did more or, or less than the other, perhaps. But, you know, you think about Obamacare. I guess with Medicaid expansion, that was a big expansion of public insurance. Um, but the main, you know, thrust of Obamacare with the uh, private exchanges and uh, people have to go buy private health insurance, you know, that, that did not uh, increase public ownership. Um, and then with, um, with Biden, uh, you know, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, it's it's basically subsidies to consumers and businesses to try to get them to kind of privately organize a more green economy. And I'm sure it'll have some effect in that direction, but you don't see uh, additional public ownership or control coming out of it. It doesn't it doesn't look like to me. So I think they both kind of are pulling levers within the market, um, but not approaching it in any sort of socialistic way. Is Biden a better president than Obama? <laughs> it's a, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, part of that's hard to tell because, uh, you know, they don't act unilaterally, right? So uh, how much credit do you give to Biden versus Obama versus uh, Congress? You know, it does look on paper like Biden had a, a tougher, uh, you know, a tougher schedule, if you will, to use the sports uh, metaphor because Obama had uh, 60 votes in the Senate and then 59 votes in the Senate and, and unified government. Uh, Biden was, was operating with a 50 50, uh, Senate. So the fact that he got what he did get through, uh, in that environment is it probably, uh, makes him more, more impressive, I guess. So some of the things that Biden name checked as his, uh, accomplishments thus far, you know, the, uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the CHIPS Act, the PAC Act, uh, some of the things that he wanted to, you know, he talked about re-upping the expanded child tax credit. What do you see as when we look back at the Biden presidency as having been sort of the most impactful, the most transformational of the policies that he's done thus far, or are all of them just kind of nibbling around the edges and ultimately forgettable? You know, there's just going to be those two big bills, I think, the the infrastructure bill and then the Inflation Reduction Act um, and, you know. That's that's pretty much it. I mean, but those are significant, you know, they'll make a significant impact on climate. Uh, We'll get some some new new bridges and roads and and whatever else out of the uh, infrastructure thing. Um, But uh, the sort of welfare state stuff, um, like the stimulus that we had, the American, what was it, ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, Mm -hmm. that the thing he passed right when he got in. There was a lot of stuff in that that kind of had people excited because we thought, oh, you like like with the child tax credit or there were some leave. There, there was a lot of kind of welfare state expansions in there. And there was some thought that those would get extended, uh, but they didn't. So we had we had one year of like a somewhat, you know, improved welfare state. And then and then it's just gone. And it's hard to see when it comes back. You know, it's kind of it's going to be very interesting, actually, when we start seeing like the new poverty statistics come out because poverty is going to go up a lot this Mm. year because it went down a lot in the prior two years because the unemployment benefits were so high and because the child tax rate and all that's gone now so we're poverty is poverty shooting up right now as as we speak so that's going to be a strange uh, legacy, I guess. And Biden really wanted to make the case. I mean, there's been all kinds of leaks and reports that he wants to run on the economy's great, um, you know, big jobs report over half a million jobs created, uh, lowest unemployment since 1969. We're creating all these new manufacturing jobs through the Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera. 
And then on the other hand, you have the split screen of record numbers of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, uh, historic high number of Americans saying their financial situation has gotten worse year over year. Um, what do you think is like, how would you describe the economic situation as it exists right now? Yeah, I think a lot of the main, a lot of the kind of consensus discourse on the economy right now, I, I've, I have a hard time understanding why it's so uh, effusive. You know, um, if you look at the percentage of people between the ages of 25 and 54 who are employed, they call that prime age employment. The prime age employment rate in the U.S. is still slightly below what it was before COVID hit like the month before COVID hit, it's like 0.3 percentage points lower. Uh, and I mean, hey, it's very impressive to come back from that. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, it's we're well, that's not all that remarkable. You know, I mean, that's not like uh, booming. We've never seen this before. We literally saw it in February of 2020. That's hmm. where we were at that point. So, you know, that those were good times, I guess, relatively speaking, certainly relative to 2008 or 2010 or something like that. But um, I, I don't know. I see a lot of people. And I guess part of the issue here is, as you pointed out, people will talk about the unemployment rate. Uh, but the unemployment rate is, I would say, a very hit or miss kind of indicator because, um, you know, the way it works is you add up all the people who are looking for work and you divide it by the number of people who are looking for work plus the people who are in work. But uh, what about people who aren't looking for work, but who would want a job? Like it's very sensitive to what person gets uh, labeled as looking for wor work and what person gets labeled as I'm just not working. I'm just out of the workforce. I just don't do that. And that's like uh, not easy to actually determine person to person. It's like it's almost like a mental state uh, than it is like a real uh, thing. Um, and so usually, you know, the way you try to correct for that is to look at the employment rate is how many people are employed. And when you look at that, we're we're just where kind of a little bit below where we were when COVID hit. So. Uh, Ronald Reagan ushered in the neoliberal era, and then it was sort of solidified and verified by uh, Bill Clinton with, you know, the era of big government is over and many of his main accomplishments were sort of right wing ideas. Uh, this is a debate Crystal and I have had a number of times. Is Do you think the neoliberal era is coming to an end or do you think it's still sort of going strong because of structural factors? Um, You know, I. Uh... I think it's at, at the moment still coming strong. You know, I think in the economy, the big things when I think about neoliberalism are essentially threefold, right? The first is the welfare state gets kind of chopped back or we get uh, more like sort of work requirements, uh, things like that, that are very kind of suspicious of people just kind of getting benefits because they're going to be lazy and they're not going to go to jobs and that kind of thing. Um, and, and it seemed like we were moving away from that a little bit, you know, with the child tax credit because they made it to where everyone could get the child tax credit, even if mom and dad didn't work. Uh, but then they snatched that right back. Right. Um, a lot of the proposals in the Build Back Better bill that didn't pass, the big welfare state proposals, which people would kind of say, ah, see, you know, we're turning a new leaf. If you looked at them, they all kind of had work history requirements, right? So the only mm -hmm. way to get parental leave is if you had worked a certain amount in the prior nine months and earned a certain amount in the prior two years. The only way to get child care benefits is if the parent was engaged in certain kinds of activities, which included work or drug rehabilitation 
Oblivion or whatever. Uh, so, you know, we, we didn't really see a whole lot, except for Universal Pre-K, which they basically just didn't even put any money towards in the bill. We didn't really see anything that was just kind of like old school social democratic welfare, where you're just like, if you got a kid, here's some money. If you got a kid, here's some time off. If you got there's all these other little rules in there meant to kind of nudge people to work. And I, I feel like we haven't fully overcome that. The other part of neoliberalism is, of course, the smashing of organized labor um, and, and in general kind of liberalizing labor markets so that you don't have as many work protections and things like that. That's supposed to create flexibility and dynamism and whatever. We haven't really turned the leaf on that. The labor movement is still very, very small, shrinking pretty much every year. Labor union density fell once again last year. Um, and then you have the public ownership. We never really had that much in the U.S., but they did have it in other countries. And, and there was a lot of privatization that occurred. Um, and I haven't seen a whole lot of turning that around uh, in the countries that did it just yet. So I think those three prongs are still pretty, pretty powerful, though. People are a little bit more, you know, willing to do some things uh, to you know, some, some economically populist things that they may not have been willing to do in the past, but but without crossing those those three lines. So this might be a harder question to answer, um, but do you see there having been a sort of cultural shift? I mean, you see certainly uh, young Americans less like freaked out, but they were less subject to the Cold War era propaganda that would make them just instantly be like, oh, my God, socialism, that's terrible. That's awful. That's bad. So you have that happening already. You also have seemingly some cultural shifts, you know, post-Trump and certainly post-pandemic about Americans' relationship to work. Um, Support for unions is at an all-time high, even as union density continues to fall. You do have these inspiring examples like the Amazon labor union, the Starbucks, uh, Starbucks workers, and the public really being on the side of these organizing efforts and in a a quite a bipartisan fashion. So uh, even though the policy landscape hasn't really shifted in the ways that you're specifying, do you see signs of a potential cultural shift underneath the surface? Yeah, no, I think you hit it uh, right on the uh, on the head there, Um, especially among the young. Right. I mean, to think Bernie Sanders, you know, he, he kind of rose to prominence among the young as a, as an explicit socialist. Uh, socialism is not a word now that you have to be too, uh, too, too worried about. I mean, I, I remember when I was going through law school or even undergrad, this was before, uh, you know, all this happened. And it was a very, very different environment. You know, you're very discouraged from like, don't call yourself that. Like, come on, Matt. Like, you know, you know you're not going to get a job doing that. Um, and you know, that's all changed. So I think there has been a change there and partially maybe this is just kind of, it takes time to filter, to filter the the generations through the system, you know, um, as, as younger people get it's a older, very diplomatic they, way of putting if, it, Matt, <laughs> if, they, if they maintain their politics, which it seems like, you know, we keep getting reaffirmations that they don't seem to be, uh, drifting off to the right, then, uh, you know, we might have a moment here and you know, a decade. (laughs) So uh, I want to ask you about another great video you did was about what's called the success sequence, which is this trope that the right likes to bring out to basically try to shame people who are in poverty as if it's some sort of moral failing on their part. Explain to everybody what the success sequence is and explain why it's bullshit. 
Yeah, the success sequence was created uh, by, well, actually, I learned recently it was created by Charles Murray. Wow, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. (laughs) I didn't know. Someone showed me. Oh, he actually came up with this a few years before. Everyone attributes it to Isabel Sawhill and Ron Haskins at uh, the Brookings Institute because they uh, published what what seemed like the first paper and everyone always cites back to it, you know. but there, in a book, he actually uh, mentioned uh, the, these three things as well. So, uh, you know, that's not a great starting point, I wouldn't say. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's this idea, you know, whenever people are talking about poverty uh, to uh, say, oh, it, there's an easy way to avoid poverty, right? You just got to follow these three steps. Uh, and the steps actually change person to person, which is kind of funny in its own way. Different publications define them differently. But the basic gist is you're supposed to graduate from high school, uh, get married, uh, and get a full-time job, and then, you know, have kids, I guess, if you, if you want to have them. Um, and, you know, I've, I've tackled this a lot over the years, but, uh, I mean, one of the, the main problem with it is first and foremost, a full-time job, that, that's all of it. That's the whole thing. Like if you uh, if you if people have full time jobs who didn't graduate high school and who are not married and whatever, their poverty rates are also quite low. Right. So it's like full time jobs sort of sort of does all the work and the rest of it is just is sort of kind of cultural filler. Um, and that's why the rest of it actually changes a little bit person to person because you can kind of mix and match whatever kind of cultural attitude you have with full time job and you're going to get a pretty decent poverty um, outcome there. Uh, but the other issue here is conceptually, um, these three steps are not steps that you just like cross off on a list and then you're good to go. Um, graduating high school is like that because they can't, you know, take your degree from you once you've graduated. But uh, marriage is not like that. People get divorced, uh, spouses die, uh, and full-time job is not like that because you can have a full-time job one day. And then not have it the next day. I've, I've, I've had it happen to me. Not a great experience. Um, and what happens when people try to, the researchers who talk about the success sequence and put statistics out about it and whatever, what happens is as soon as you uh, fall into some kind of problem, like you lose your job or there's a divorce or whatever, as soon as something happens to you that's not good, you become disabled they immediately take you out of the success sequence. They immediately go, oh, that person didn't follow the success sequence. And then they blame your poverty on not following the success sequence. Mm. But you were following the success sequence the day before. Um, and so that's kind of the main trick here is it's a it's a data cutting game where uh, as soon as someone gets into one of these problems that tend to cause poverty in society, they immediately shoot you out of the success sequence bucket, even though you used to follow it. And then they take that and, and run with it. So. Well, and it seems like all of this is an effort to say, like, there's no collective problem. There's nothing, no role for the government right. mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, helping the, the citizenry to succeed and be able to have the basics of, like, food and shelter and, like, ability to pursue the life ends that they want to pursue. It's all on you. It's your fault. There's a sequence you can follow. And if you're blaming the government, you just have, like, a victim mentality. But working poor still exists, too. Sorry to cut you off, Matt. Working poor is a thing. It's a whole category. There are people who work full time and they don't even make it. There's millions of them who don't make enough money to survive. So just on its face, it's kind of absurd. And a point you made in the video I thought was great is that, like, they leave two-thirds of the people out off the jump. Like, if you're disabled, you're uh, immediately, oh, yeah. they're like, you're out. You're yeah, out. or a student. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, the way it's defined is if you have a disabled person, an elderly person, 
in your household or if your household consists of only people below the age of 25. In these studies, they just drop all of those families out of the sample. And that actually is about two-thirds of all poor people who are poor at the market distribution of income. I guess that is probably the bigger point. I forget that one. It's so it's so egregious. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think it really ties into like this whole sort of like grind set mentality. Kyle and I were watching a video yesterday of this debate where, you know, uh, one person was trying to bring up some valid points about like systemic racism. And here's, you know, black people get undermined in the housing market and that means they can't build wealth. And the response was just like, stop having a victim mentality. (laughs) Why are you telling people Mm -hmm. that? Because then they're just going to blame the system instead of getting out there and trying to hustle. Like, what would your, I mean, I know it's kind of a silly thing, but what would your response to that be? Because it is true. You don't want to like disempower people and make them feel like they're just like a victim of their circumstances and there's nothing that they can do ultimately to, to sort of better their situation. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love those people. I follow quite a few of those people on, <laughs> uh, on Twitter and I love, I love their contents. Um, so do we, so do we, Matt. Mr. Get More Cash, uh, Side King, Side Hustle King. Like I love all those people. They're so, uh, nuts. I mean, but yeah, you know, it's, it's worth distinguishing between, um, you know, uh, your role in the political system and your what you have to do as a person, right? And so I think there is room for that, though I don't know why they have to be pitched against one another. You can simultaneously say, yes, the system needs to be reformed uh, to make sure that these problems don't exist, uh, but also uh, to the extent that you as an individual have to navigate the world, here's some tips for how you can do that in the system that currently exists. So... One example I give of this is the welfare state, because obviously I spend a lot of time on that. A lot of the poverty and, and, and financial insecurity and stuff that exists in this country would not exist if we had a welfare state that was similar uh, to, say, Northern Europe, right? Um, but it does exist. And uh, so as a person, you might uh, you know, recommend to someone, hey, you should save some money. <laughs> you should be in a you should try to protect yourself because, you know, things will happen. You might become disabled. You might lose a job. And in our system, there's nothing for you. So, you know, simultaneously recommend them to adopt a left wing political stance and to participate in the system that way to try to get the welfare state. But also as a person. Make sure that you are uh, secure as best you can uh, within the rules that we have. So they uh, they struggle with that, Matt. I was on the uh, PBD podcast, and this is a very you know grind set kind of podcast. And I made the exact same point you just made, which is like, look, let's differentiate here. There's systemic critique and what we could do to make the system better, more fair, more just. And then there's also individual personal advice you could give somebody to try to thrive regardless of what's going on systemically. And you like separate those things out and they don't. They, they like try desperately not to accept it. And if anything, they use like the personal hustle grind set stuff to cock block the conversation about systemic yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird because it seems like you could still sell people, you know, your gum tree book and whatever while acknowledging that the system, you know, could be reformed. Like, I don't, I don't know why they think that that's so necessary. I mean, I guess it does something rhetorically and it really kind of gets people pumped to be like, who cares about the system? You can do whatever you want to do uh, kind of thing. I guess it serves some some hype purpose. But logically, there's no reason why you couldn't say, yeah, man, if I could, I would fix a system A, B and C and you would never have this issue. But 
that's that's the issue does exist. And so let me tell you how to navigate the system as 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 it, you know, as it presents itself. That that seems totally fine. And you could still get people to hire you as a coach and do all that (laughs) scammy stuff. But maybe there's a a market out there for you, Matt. You can fill this uh, (laughs) this market niche. I mean, a related adjacent, sometimes overlapping uh, sphere of online content is like all the Manosphere stuff, which I know you did. um, You took a look at in one of your videos recently and specifically, specifically you looked at this claim of whether or not there is a dramatic rise in the number of sexless young men. And this is part of a conversation about um, whether men and boys are in crisis. What's the nature of that crisis? What's the answer to that crisis? What is the societal hole and failure that, you know, the Andrew Tates of the world are ultimately filling? And so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of that as well. Yeah, I'm still formulating those, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, do that piece by piece because I watch that stuff uh, and I think it's it's entertaining. I I can definitely see why people are entertained by it, but I I, I don't really uh, it doesn't register to me viscerally. Like I don't really see myself in it at all or really, you know, I don't I don't have the same issues, I guess, that uh, the people who uh, are really like it have. Um but yeah, I mean, um, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think we're seeing, I, we are seeing the male employment rate drop uh, some over time. Some of that's due to aging and disability. But uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I, if I had to take a stab at it, and this is where I'm kind of gravitating towards, as I'm po- sort of poking around at this and coming up with these other videos, is it's not so much that men's position has declined. It's just that men's position relative to women is not what it once was and that relative decline not absolute decline that relative decline in that kind of gender balance is causing some people to struggle um and you know i don't know what you do about that precisely (laughs) obviously we don't want to say well you know in order for men to thrive women need to not uh be as successful as they are um but maybe there's some way to uh to to you know yeah uh, i mean i see it around, uh, around that circle you know i mean maybe this is because of my uh, our own sort of shared ideology here but i mean i think it would be less of a, a freak out around that i guess relative rebalancing if people were doing better you know if people had wages that allowed them to have a family and buy a house and like yeah. live a stable middle class life then it wouldn't be perceived as such a sort of existential um, threat that your relative position in society vis-a-vis some other demographic group had deteriorated. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I mean, that's true uh, in a lot of contexts as well, right? If you have a very unequal society, the uh, consequences of sort of uh, your relative position in it are immense, right? The difference, if the difference between the 25th percentile and the 75th percentile is massive, uh, then it's going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot more problems about maybe slipping a little bit than if the differences are really small, right? Um, And so, and you see that across the board uh, for lots, lots of, I think, problems we have where you're kind of like, I don't really get it. 
you often find that that's the issue. For So to give a, another example, um, the anxieties that people who have high amounts of income, you know, make people in the top 10%, the anxieties that they often have for themselves and for their kids, despite mm-hmm. being really well off, I think a lot of that boils down to them being able to see how low the bottom is and realizing that they could fall there. There's nothing that, that would stop you if you lost your job to fall there. And there's nothing you can do with your kid to guarantee that they're not going to wind up there necessarily. You can save money and stuff like that, but you know, they might wind up there as well if things don't go well for them. And so um, I think shrinking, shrinking the gap between the different positions in societies so go a long way to making a lot of people mentally healthier. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of like the, the core terror underneath the varsity blue scandal, right? Where you have all these, Wealthy people yeah. and celebrities, Lori Laughlin and whatever, who were willing to cheat and break the law to get their kids into, um, you know, the, the school that they thought those kids needed to maintain what their their social and wealth status is. It seemed to me like that that terror was undergirding all of that. And I, I saw it very clearly when I lived in uh, Manhattan and you had all these, you know, mm-hmm. super wealthy families and moms and whatever. And the amount of terror they had around like their kids success was um, kind of it was kind of shocking to me, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's 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 very kind of paradoxical, you know, <laughs> because they are the winners, but they don't they don't feel like winners. They feel like nervous wrecks because they're afraid of getting knocked off the pedestal, you know. Yeah, it reminds me of uh John Rawls and the veil of ignorance, and the idea behind that is like, what if I told you I was going to randomly take you and your consciousness and put you in the body of somebody in a society? What society would you pick to live in? Right. Would you pick the U.S., given the extreme income and wealth inequality, or would you pick, like, Norway, where the bottom is not nearly— You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So if you had to pick between those two, and it's the veil of ignorance, you know, almost everybody's going to go with one of the social democracies, right? Yeah, certainly. And and then the funny thing is the veil of ignorance, it's like it's even the argument's even stronger than that because the veil of ignorance supposes that you don't know whether you're going to be on the top or the bottom. So right, the idea yeah. is like if you knew if you knew you're going to be on the top, you would prefer the US, right? But what we're seeing is actually I'm not sure that you would because the people at the top are now so scared of falling to the bottom. Maybe even if you knew you were going to be at the top, you might say, hmm, "Right. I'll take yeah, I might take a more equal society. It'll be more chill. I won't have to worry as much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to weigh in, Crystal, on the Manosphere point, yeah. the Andrew Tate point. Yeah. I don't think people don't do well with like ambiguity and cognitive dissonance. They want like strong answers. And I feel like those people provide like, this is your role. I'm going to define your role. I'm going to define what you have to do. And then you go out and get it. And I think that provides some sort of comfort to people psychologically where they feel like, well, this is how I have to act. This is what I have to do Mm. in order to get from point A to point B. People want that daddy figure. They want that daddy figure. Yeah. And so it just, you know, it's, it's a hyper masculine, like super toxic role, but they feel like at least dude has answered and the answers. And to your point, <laughs> answers it's like, are like, here's how to be a sex trafficker. <laughs> and to your point, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and to your point, it's like when we live in a doggy dog world and doggy dog economy and, you know, people are struggling to get by, 
It's like they're grasping onto something. It's almost like kind of religious in a sense. I would yeah. Say. Well, yeah. I mean, this is something I've been kind of obsessed with this um, year, Matt, is it seems like we are truly in like a golden era of the con artist, because I do think you have so much societal insecurity that allows, you know, charlatans to be able to prey on those fears and weaknesses and exploit people's like, you know, desires and terrors and vulnerabilities. And, you know, I see this with, um, the way crypto was pitched to young men also, you know, fortune favors the brave. And so you can see really clearly, okay, we had this financial collapse. We have a system that's corrupt. We have a system where wages are stagnant and it's harder than ever to like be able to establish that sort of core image of the, the man as the provider, et cetera. And they're saying, here's the path. We've got this secret special knowledge of how you can be the one who comes out on top. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really sad how many people basically fell for that pitch. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, again, it goes back to inequality here, you know, as things become very unequal and the rewards to the top are so great and the, the, the condition of the bottom is so, is so bad in relative terms. Um, you know, anyone who can sell you on the idea that they can get you up there is, is going to be able to, uh, to catch a lot of a lot of uh, victims. Yeah, you're you're willing to take the risk ultimately is what it comes down to because the consequences of, you know, falling behind are so dire. Um, Matt, the last question I had for you going back to the uh, socialism dial, if you were going to (laughs) propose uh, a platform or a couple of basic economic reforms for a presidential candidate or someone who was in the the White House that would start to to turn things in the direction that you wanted, what do you think would be some of the best, basic, most doable reforms that would start to move society in that direction? Um, You know, I, I would say... I would focus on two things at the moment, which are not even necessarily socialistic per se, but, uh, you know, completing the welfare state, (laughs) we still lack uh, what a lot of other countries have in the form of childcare benefits, the form of pre-K, parental leave, monthly child benefits, uh, universal health care, getting that all situated, even if you still have very high highly unequal levels of ownership and stuff like that um, will we'll go a decent ways to getting people, uh, you know, to, to helping people and making people feel better. And also, I think it, it provides, I think when people are more comfortable, they actually are, are more, more willing to be a little bit more daring politically, yeah. um, kind of the opposite of this sort of accelerationist uh, perspective. I think mm. when people are desperate, they are, they are less willing to, to do something uh, bold. And so... I would start there and then I would start with the labor movement uh, as well, because those are, I think, the two ingredients uh, that get you uh, sort of the rest of it. And can you elaborate on the labor movement? Do you mean like the PRO Act? Do you mean sectoral bargaining? What would be your ideal? All of of that. All of that. I mean, we're just trying to get it uh, to where workers are organized and are able to navigate the economy through collective bargaining 
uh, within their organizations as opposed to having to navigate it individually. It also means enforcing employment law. Wage theft is an incredible problem in the U.S. that doesn't get talked about very much. People are often not paid what they what they literally were promised that they should be paid. Um, you know, so just enforcing and cracking down on all that and making sure that workers uh, are safe and 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 can collectively bargain and get decent wages and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think uh, could go a decent ways. And, and also, I think, provides a foundation, especially if you put them in the organizations, get them into unions. Unions then provide a good political foundation for, for going beyond just that, you know. Totally. Runig, we are big supporters of your work. Uh, we love what you're doing. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you and where they can follow you, where they can subscribe and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so I have uh, my think tank, peoplespolicyproject.org. I'm now on YouTube at Matt slash uh, Matt, Matt underscore Brunig. And I also have a podcast, The Brunigs, with my wife, patreon.com slash The Brunigs. So. Another brilliant thinker yeah. there. Awesome. Keep up the great work, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, guys, that was uh, Matt Brunig. Very, very smart guy. Yes, very smart. As I said before, very clear thinker. You know, yeah. like has thoroughly thought through his arguments and policy approaches. And it's sort of like very unemotional and rational. And, I, I you know, it was interesting when he touched on there at the end, how he's saying he believes in like the opposite of the accelerationist approach. Yeah, the accelerationist approach is basically like once Things everything get worse before they get better, then yeah. people will freak out and it will get better. And he's like, no, no actually, worse and worse and worse. what happens when things get worse is people clamp down. They're even more terrified. They're even more fearful of change. And I think I think that's probably closer to reality. Well, here's how, you know, accelerationism is BS. If it were true. After George W. Bush's presidency, we, things would have gotten a lot better. Instead, we got Obama, who was right. a neoliberal Status centrist. Quo manager. So, as the right moved further right, the left followed the right more to the right. And yeah. so the right moved off a cliff and the left moved to becoming centrist or center right. And that's how you know accelerationism is garbage. Like when you do bad things and you're persistent in doing bad things, that doesn't make it more likely good things will happen. Yeah. It makes it it makes the status quo more bad in order to get good things. You have to get good things. You have to fight for the good things. You have to like it. it is, I agree with him. Anti-accelerationism is the correct position. Yeah. You make things better by making things better. You don't make things better by making them worse. That, that makes no sense. The other thing that's that I was just thinking about is so much of how Americans think about socialism is based much more on like vibes and propaganda it's fortune cookie bullshit yeah then it is on you know he lays down you guys should watch the whole video like okay here's what it is here's what i would classify as a capitalist institution here's a socialist institution here's countries that have a higher percent of these things here's how you could ultimately get there etc and you know there there actually is if you ask if you ask americans about like how do you feel about socialism you get one response but if you ask them like oh how do you feel about worker co-ops for example how do you feel about public libraries you know how do you feel about like new deal era there's there is actually a lot of support for certain socialist type institutions even if people would recoil some people would recoil at the term itself yeah i mean the equating of like extremists on the far left and extremists on the far right being exactly the same like if you bring up socialism and fascism in the same sentence it just strikes me as really brain dead well you you you, you, i think offered um 
one really key point, which is that for Americans, socialism and authoritarianism Are, have been lumped together. Yeah, they just feel like when they hear socialism, they think the government's going to tell me not to do stuff. Right. And that's what they think. And that there's going to be a basically like a, a dictatorial scheme right. that's going to impinge on your freedom and make you less free. And there's going to be, you know, this like state run top down disaster. And I think the way Matt thinks about it is much uh, clearer, which is, you know, actually socialism is kind of incompatible, like legitimate socialism is sort of incompatible with authoritarianism, whereas actually capitalism tends to court authoritarianism or at least plutocracy. Yeah, but I will say there is such a thing as an authoritarian left. Sure. That that is a thing that exists. Yeah. So in other words, you can have a society where economically people are more equal Equal, in Mm -hmm. a sense, less income and wealth inequality. Uh, But also in that society, somebody bans the media from criticizing them, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody throws you in prison without due process. You can go down a list, doesn't allow you to take whatever substance you want, stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? So it is possible to have, you know, left authoritarianism. Many would argue Stalin sort of fell in that camp, right? So that is possible. But yeah, when you're thinking about the concept of socialism, it makes sense to think about it in the academic sense. What exactly are we talking about here? Like we could talk about fascism as an ideology and talk about what that entails. What are the policies that go hand in hand with that? Ultimately, it does come down to, a, you know, a strongman leader. It's like inherent in the nature of fascism. Mm-hmm. It's ultra right wing, super authoritarian, uh, ultra nationalist, top down. And that's just not socialism is just not that. It's It's quite the opposite of that. And so to sort of lazily equate them, um, is just it honestly it's a victory of American propaganda is what it is that propaganda is so heavy and it's been like that for so long that people just can't a lot of people just can't break free of that yeah. and they have no interest in learning like more about it it's just like no I heard it's bad socialism is authoritarianism is bad we're done here That's yeah it. and it's like well it's a lot more complicated than that and that doesn't mean that there's not a, a whole boatload of criticisms you can and should have of whatever the Soviet Union or fill in the blank that's all fine and dandy but you have to you have to analyze that on its own merits and and say specifically why it was bad not just socialism right well i mean mean, that's why there's a focus on certain countries venezuela cuba soviet union specifically yeah and you know any of the scandinavian countries those are like nah no we don't we don't count that right Yeah, yeah they don't count that that's right or what they do i've heard ben shapiro do this is like actually it's the capitalism over there that makes them great or to the, which I would respond, okay, if that's capitalism, can we do that exact kind of capitalism? And they go, no, that's socialism. The, the, which is it? <laughs> well, the other the other one I hear is, well, they don't have a diverse population, so they can do it. It's like that's the way of saying get rid of the black people, and maybe we could do that here. Yeah, that's like, a really whoa, man. Don't tell on yourself a, too hard. That's a dicey one. Yeah, that's, that's a real dicey one. one. <laughs> and look, honestly, even when you look at Cuba, for example, you've we both listened to the blowback podcast, which mm-hmm. talks about you know the U.S.'s posture and history with Cuba, and I mean it was basically Great podcast, by the way, it was a puppet gangster state and the mafia was controlling the casinos and batista was a dictator Mm -hmm. this is when it was a quote-unquote free cuba right and then fidel castro overthrows him in the revolution and stuff and um there's i think the again it's a lazy assumption to act like well nothing that happened there afterwards was good and it was all authoritarian that's not true at all literacy shot through the roof it went from like very few people were literate to almost the entire country is literate. Yeah. They create even with the embargo and the sanctions, they created a universal health care system. They created a lung vaccine. So in other words, I, I I want people to be more intellectually honest and not lazy about this stuff and act okay, what actually was good here, what was bad here? But people just, you know, you, you hear Fidel Castro and you think like dictator, bad, let's move on. And it's like It's also 
people tie together the socialism of Cuba with the authoritarianism, like those two things had to go together. Right. Whereas they would never have said like the capitalism when Cuba was, you know, run by the gangsters or whatever, that the capitalism and the authoritarianism, that those two had to go together. They don't see it there. It's like, oh, no, it's it could be different and it could have been a different way. But when it comes to socialism, it's like, no, no, those two things are hand in glove. And I mean, the way it does work is ultimately in that sort of left authoritarian government, Government, they use the welfare state. It's like the the corrupt deal they make with the public is like, we'll, you know, we'll have a, a larger welfare state and we'll make you okay. And you're going to stay quiet when we ban media organizations and like rule with this heavy hand. Yeah, don't allow dissent, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. to your point, they have the Victims of Communism Museum in D.C. And right across the street from the Victims of Communism Museum, it's a park packed full of homeless people. Now, they would never say... Those are victims of capitalism. Mm-hmm. They would never say that, but that is the exact standard they would use when it comes to criticizing a communist country or a socialist country. Mm-hmm. Whatever's happening is the fault of that system, right? right? So therefore, these homeless people are all victims of capitalism, right? By your own logic. But they, they balk. Yeah. They balk. Only the good things are, capitalism is responsible for all the good things, socialism and communism are responsible for all the bad things. Mm-hmm. How mighty convenient. Very lazy. How mighty convenient. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys, that's the show. We love you all very much. Do us a favor. Go on over to Substack. Pay five bucks a month. You get the video of all the interviews and you get them a day early. Uh, Thank you to everybody who does support us on Substack. You guys mean the world to us. And yeah, remember, that's how we fund the entire show. You know, we don't we don't do any ad reads. We've never had a conversation with an advertiser and uh, we like to keep it that way. So thank you for your support. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon.